And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met Eric Garcetti when he was trudging through the snows of Iowa in 2007, campaigning for Barack Obama for president, a member of the Los Angeles City Council looking vaguely uncomfortable in a very heavy parka and boots uh, in the winter weather of the Midwest. Since then, he's been elected mayor of Los Angeles and re-elected mayor of Los Angeles, and now um, is mentioned as a potential candidate for president of the United States. I went by and visited Mayor Garcetti at City Hall in Los Angeles the other day to talk about his life and career and what might come next. Eric Garcetti, always always good to see you. Great to be Plenty with you. Plenty of stuff to talk about, but yeah. I, I, I never really got the full story of your exotic family history. And of course, I read up a little bit getting ready for this, but... I didn't know the whole story about your your grandfather and uh, and and that whole side of the family in Mexico and what happened. So just, let's start there. Well, I've joked before. First of all, it's great to be with you, yeah. um, and welcome to LA. Thank you. Um, I'm kind of an average Angelino in many ways, and only in America kind of guy. Your average Mexican American Jewish Italian. <laughs> who I think everybody, because of my last name, figures I'm 100 percent Italian. So my question is, why do you hate the Irish? That's what you know. I it's interesting. Know. I actually have some Irish in me too. <laughs> I knew. Baines. I knew you were going to pull yeah, that on no, me. No, no, no. My uh, great great grandfather uh, <laughs> fled Ireland because he didn't want to be a priest. Married a nice Mexican American girl in uh, in Arizona. Uh, Juanita Baines, my great grandmother, uh, or great great grandmother, and yeah, the rest is history. I, I, um, my father's parents both spoke Spanish as their first language. My grandfather was born in Mexico. Um, I guess you'd call him a dreamer, even though they didn't use that term back then. But he, when he was one year old, my great grandfather died in the Mexican Revolution. Uh, rumor has it he was a judge who was hanged, and his wife, his widow, picked up my grandfather in her arms and crossed the border. You know as we see echoed today, you know, fearing for her life, wanting to make sure her son survived. They went through Texas and came to L.A. Um, he married my grandmother, who was second generation already, Mexican-American, one of 18 children to the same two parents from Mexico. So basically every Latino in Arizona is my cousin um, because hmm. they grew up in a small mining town called Superior, and she has every brother and sister in the world uh, grew up there, and they came when she was in high school to L.A., so really that side of the family is Mexican of uh, Italian, Irish, Spanish, and Indian uh, blood. My mom uh, is Jewish, um, from, and her uh, grandparents and, um, and parents who were born here, they were all of Polish, Russian, Ukrainian descent. So I kind of navigated borders growing up. Uh, and had they been here for a while, or did they come over during the war? Or? They came during the pogroms, mm-hmm. um, you know, when Jews were being yeah. enlisted. In That's the, when uh, my dad came over. Right. So in the beginning of the 20th century, what's interesting is my great-grandfather, who was born in Poland, um, was a tailor here in L.A. on the east side um, of town. His son then uh, followed him, Harry Roth, who dreamed of being a piano player, uh, something that I think has been passed down to me. 
And uh, we should note you were listening to jazz on vinyl when we walked into you know, your office. So, and there's a piano in the corner. So. There's a piano in here. I try yes. to. It's my escape uh, when I have five five minutes between a meeting. Um, but he was in the depression, no opportunities to become a pianist, so he became a tailor like his father. And named a clothing company after his dad called Lewis Roth Suits. And they mm. made suits right here in L.A., a union company, one of the first. Jack Valenti was one of his customers. Uh-huh. And when Jack Valenti was tapped by President Johnson after Kennedy was assassinated to go to D.C., he said, I know a guy out in L.A. who makes a great suit. And my grandfather became tailored to the President of the United States, to President Johnson. And that would be a nice story. It would end right there. But it goes further. He was opposed to the Vietnam War. And he had to make a decision when Johnson was considering running again in 68, whether to speak out and lose his most important client. Or just cut the sleeves a few inches short. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it would take to make the decision. But, or, or not speak out and keep him. And so he took out a full-page ad in the New York Times that said, President Johnson, as your tailor, don't run for re-election. Please get out of Vietnam. And my wife and I will contribute, I think, $10,000 to your retirement. And... Uh, um, you know, I grew up kind of learning you speak up and speak out for what you believe in. Uh, that wasn't well received, I assume. I don't think he stayed as a customer. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he was somebody who followed his conscience. That and, was literally speaking off the cuff. Huh? Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I had to. I'm <laughs> sorry. You. I apologize. David Axelrod, he'll be here all podcast. <laughs> yes. All podcast. Try the veal. Uh, your dad mm-hmm. uh, became a widely known figure around the country in the 90s. Uh, Gil Garcetti, and he was the he was the uh, district attorney here during the O.J. Simpson right. trial. But you were not here, right? You were overseas at the time. I was. I mean, before that, I think a lot of people think I grew up with politics. I didn't. My my father had been active in Eugene McCarthy's campaign out here with my mom, um, but he was just a line deputy district attorney, a prosecutor. I grew up. Nobody knew the name Garcetti. My mom worked in uh, philanthropic worlds here, um, uh, investing in the city. And so it wasn't until I graduated from college that my dad ran and won for district attorney. And by then, I was uh, studying abroad in England. Um, and uh, so I was away for a lot of that, but I came back, helped him run his reelection campaign in 1996, um, and you know, was really proud of seeing the things that he did to highlight domestic violence. Um, I think when he saw the OJ trial um, and OJ being on trial come up, he said, this is a moment to raise awareness about something. He grew up in a home where there was some domestic violence. He knew that 100% of the people on death row, at least in this state, had grown up with uh, violence in the household. And he really wanted to do something about it. And it taught me, like, never miss an opportunity in the midst of even, you know, all the chaos that was that case. Now, had you been, you, you said politics wasn't a big thing, but had you thought of yourself in a political context uh no, not really. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, which is, uh, everybody's seen it on TV. It's literally where the Brady Bunch was filmed, Encino Little League, like right in the middle of things. Uh, it was very kind of middle class, um, everywhere, anywhere existence. We had the GM car factory that shut down when I was growing up. We had people who had factory jobs and who'd lost them. And I, I learned kind of growing up in LA, this limitless potential, because LA is this place where anything's possible. But it's all, it was also a place that reflected kind of middle America in, uh, on the coast of uh, California. Um, but no, I, I thought I would 
do something, you know, maybe in music. Um, I was interested in, in music or uh, potentially doing something in, um, in human rights activism where I had spent time in, in Africa and I lived in Southeast Asia working uh, with some of the democratic resistance in Burma. Um, yeah, I know. I saw that. That's interesting. You must, yeah. That must be painful now watching what's going on. Absolutely. We had Rohingya who we were working and living in the jungle. Uh, four days journey from um, Bangkok over the border into Burma. Um, it was called the Liberated Areas, and there was a shadow capital, and a lot of the students and ethnic minorities like the Rohingya and other groups like the Karen and other ethnic groups had fled to the jungle um, after the government had cracked down and shot and killed so many pro-democracy um, uh, students and others. To see now um, you know, what's happening inside a new and a newly resurgent Burma against the Rohingya is absolutely heartbreaking. I still have... Um, connections back to that country. What, what, what is your uh, sense about what's happened with Aung San Suu Kyi? Nobel Prize winner was... Uh... I, I think, it, you know, I've, I've learned through life, never make too much of a hero of anybody. Everybody's full of, of flaws. And I think that Aung San Suu Kyi, unfortunately, for the Burmans, who are the ethnic majority, um, there's always a tortured history with some of the folks who are ethnic minorities. The Burmans themselves lay claim to plenty of oppression over the years under British rule and, and under the Japanese. But unfortunately, there's sometimes been a lot of overreach where these ethnic minorities are completely forgotten or even worse, atrocities with rape, with murder, with burning down of villages is not unique to the Rohingya. And um, it does sadden me that some somebody who won the Nobel Peace Prize and somebody who we had as such a hero um, hasn't been able to stop that. Uh, do you, and, and do you think she is um, uh, complicit or is she uh, responsive to the, to the well, somebody, military there? Somebody once told me once you're in government, uh, whether you did it or not, you're responsible for everything. Yeah, so, spoken um, like a former city council. Exactly. <laughs> if yeah. you don't fix it, it is you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you were uh, at the London School of Economics, and you were working on a PhD mm-hmm. on ethnicity and nationalism, which yeah. both of which, <laughs> both topics, they're related and they seem very yeah. germane uh, now. Uh, what 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 caused you to settle on that, and um, and and what caused you not to finish it? Well, you know, I was uh, in England. Um, I had spent time in high school in Ethiopia the northern part of Ethiopia, between the two famines in a medical relief mission trying to help uh, women and children who had been left behind. Um, And it planted a seed in my head that I wanted to go back to to, uh, northeast Africa. The time in Burma, working with these ethnic minorities, some of who had been promised their own countries by the British in colonial times and had been fighting 50 years for independence or for autonomy, really, I think, led me that pathway as, as well as my own background, where I've like I said, kind of navigated culture very fluidly since I was born. It's part of living in L.A. It's part of being an American, I think, and part of just my own being ethnic background. Being your family, yeah. Exactly. And um, the thing that probably convinced me most to do this is um, I was in Oxford in 1993. President Clinton had just been sworn in. He came to visit us in Oxford, and um, I remember he greeted us. I was lucky enough to be a Rhodes Scholar like he was, and at a place called Rhodes House, he came to introduce himself to all of us. And I knew I, don't, I wouldn't have half a second to say hi. So I wrote him a letter the night before 
saying, please intervene in um, the Balkans um, and help the Bosnians out who were being, uh, you know, victims of genocide at the time. I wrote him this long letter, the reasons why. It's kind of naive looking back on it. He sa- I said, you know, stop Serbia, help us do something for these people. And I realized that ethnicity is usually this thing that um, is used by political leaders to oftentimes turn us against one another. That if you look at the history of the Balkans, Croats and uh, Bosnian Muslims and Serbs had intermarried but for years. But there are leaders, some of them, who wanted to create these sanitized histories, said, no, we've always hated each other and we have to kill everybody who's Muslim or kill everybody who's Croat or kill everybody who's Serb. And it taught me the lesson that we think ethnicities can be linked to very ancient things, but they're more often than not manipulated by political leaders. And I never imagined the times we're living through now, how uh, resonant that would be. But um, true history is much more complicated. We as a human family have always interbred, traveled the world, mixed with one another. Um, We don't have these purified races of human beings or even ethnic groups. Um, And here in America, we know that most because we don't have an ethnic nation. We have a civic nation that has encompassed white and black and Latino and native and Asian folks for hundreds of years. And I think it's important for us to look at that, to try to um, make sure we aren't manipulated in the wrong way and to figure out why um, certain leaders do that. And uh, I published... Do you have any in mind? Or? <laughs> well, we see, I think, at the national level, one thing that our president gets, which is universal, is people do yearn for identity. They want an emotional connection. I think what we're sold, though, is a very perverse identity um, that is an exclusionary one. But we can't just talk to people simply about economics and jobs and policies. We actually have to create a sense of belonging again and a sense of Americanism. There's an exhibition at the Whitney Museum right now, and I saw somebody on Instagram had an anti-war poster from the 60s that had a torn American flag, and then it had uh, a thread stitching it back together saying, Heal America. I think to be an opponent at that time of the war instead of saying... I don't believe in America. It was the opposite. We believe so deeply in America. Let's heal it. And I think that that's missing from our conversation. How will we heal our identity and belonging in this nation? Yeah, well, it seems to me that there, as you say, there's great political currency in exploiting uh, some of these uh, suspicions, uh, passions, uh, resentments, differences. But I I will say um, that uh, and th- this is why I was interested in your studies because it, you know, it seems to me what's happened with uh, Donald Trump is a is a symptom of something that we've seen not just in America but you see it mm-hmm. uh, in in Europe, and you know we see these we see all over the world movements toward nationalism, uh, tribalism, um, and uh, so I, I'm I'm interested in your sense of why that is it's because it's not unique to us no and i think history shows that this happens it it, usually when things are very unsettled sometimes that's economically you look between the two wars in germany or something and when there was uh inflation and uh, a great depression but even now in times of economic plenty it's still an unsettling time technology is changing the nature of jobs the insecurity about those things that used to root us and so that's the moment when ethnic identities, whether they are inclusive or exclusive, can come in and have resonance with people. Our challenge is to get back to what America's always 
um, been striving for, which is a more inclusive version of that. But we had a presidential candidate who literally started his first speech telling us who the enemy was in ethnic terms. Mexicans who are rapists and murderers. Um, some of them might be okay, he said. And that's literally the seed that he planted. At the beginning, his first speech as a Mexican-American, like I couldn't believe myself. I mean, it was, um, I know, you know, the judges and district attorneys and mayors and doctors and business people and living in Los Angeles, like it was something so foreign to me, my family's experience. But, um, but he wasn't wrong that people need identity. They need belonging. We need each other. But how we define our family is going to be critical in these insecure times. People, not just here, but around the world, will reach for that. A lot of this is being driven by technology. No question. And that technology is not just, uh, it's not just changing our economies at a really frenetic pace, leaving you know, some people in a position to do very, very well and many others, as you say, unsettled. But also in communications, which allows us to create our sort of virtual reality. Yep. Worlds. It feels like we're um, like we're really siloed in a way that uh, we haven't been. We've never had more of an ability to reach out and to widen our communications, and we've never had more of an ability to tune people out and narrow it. It's kind of one of the ironies of this moment that I can literally, you know, be talking to anybody around the world via FaceTime and engage with somebody in a much more immediate way than ever before. And at the same time, if I don't want to listen to anybody but the people who share the exact same opinions as me over and over again, I can close off the world. Yeah, and that, and, and, and too many people are doing that. Let that's me why they should listen to the Axe File. Exactly. Well, that's mainly the antidote that I recommend <laughs> to everyone I meet. You, um, you came back here. You, we've talked about all of your uh, forays around the world. So then you came back here. I know you were teaching, and ultimately yep. you run for the city council, which seems a long way from, um, you know, your studies, yeah. your globalism, and and so on. And I know you said L.A. is the world in a right. way. But what what uh, prompted you to 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 run for the city council? Well, I think you're right. I mean, when somebody said you're you've done international development, human rights work, and you taught international relations, what are you doing running for city council? My first response was always, "Have you looked at L.A.?" It is, you know, the district I was seeking to run for had little Armenia in it. It had historic Filipino town. It had Thai town. You know, it was on the border of Chinatown. It was probably fifty percent Latino from multiple countries. It really was a United Nations. But secondly, I. I I think when somebody suggested it to me, and I, I was the underdog, I was running against somebody who had served as the councilman in that seat before and almost become mayor, a sitting state legislator. I mean, it was a stacked field that, that I probably was running. You did have a good sixth. political name. Well, interestingly enough, my dad ran uh, six months or seven months before me for re-election and got tossed out two to one by the voters of L.A. County. So it wasn't uh, the kind well, of currency. We had a familiar political A familiar name, name. exactly. Just, I've heard yeah. of that guy. Is that that <laughs> DA? Um, but, but I loved the experience because um, when somebody suggested to me, I realized what Eleanor Roosevelt said when she was writing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. She said, after all, where do human rights begin? I'm paraphrasing. Not in distant places, faraway lands, but in places so small they're not found on any human map. The places we work, the places we live, the places we study and worship. And I realized that all the things I wanted to do to make a better world, if I didn't have roots to a single block and a single street and neighborhood, that didn't really matter for much. And I think so many young people come to me wanting to get involved in politics. They're like, should I go to D.C. and intern on Capitol Hill? 
I always say, no, find a community that needs you. There's no shortage of applications for internships, but in some community, in your local community or wherever you want to put your roots down, there are people who need you much more than Washington, D.C. does. And this nation has always been a collection of local communities inward to D.C., not vice versa. And uh, so I got a pair of shoes, took them off only at night, walked holes through them, knocked on more doors, and got in a runoff and surprised myself and others and got elected in 2001. Yeah, you know, you, it's interesting what you say because, um, you know, I started uh, I grew up in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I started covering local politics in Chicago, and I was a city hall bureau chief for the Tribune. And um, and then when I became a consultant, I uh, did the media and strategy, mm-hmm. mostly for mayor's races around the country, right. because it seemed to me like that was the most vital politics there was. Long before now, and everybody's saying, oh, now cities are so much more important and mayors are important. With all due respect, I think that's always been the case. I mean, the third largest economy in the world now is Los Angeles. I mean, you can count GDPs, but, you know, nations are the accidents of history and war and conquest. States in the United States are kind of arbitrary lines. But cities are organic since the old ancient Athens city-state. That's where people move to because they want to. And by that measure, Tokyo is the biggest economy in the world. New York is second, and L.A. is now the third largest economy in the world. 18 million souls. It's, you know, the number one port in America, airport in America. It's this huge political and economic organism. And to me, that's not brand new. I think that's always been since the beginning of history. Well, all this talk of economies reminds me we've got to take a short break. And we'll be right back with Mayor Eric Garcetti. Beyond the sort of scale of Los Angeles, because there are big cities and small, and, but what is it about local government and local politics that is so visceral and so uh, real uh, to people? Uh, Washington's a little attenuated. Even Sacramento is mm-hmm. attenuated. But when you're a city councilman, I mean, there's no escape. You're right there. On the accountability side, you're absolutely right. People will find you at the grocery store. They'll talk to you at the diner. They'll while you're taking a walk, you know. They'll say, "Excuse me," and I know you're with your family, but you know, you're never off the job. Your wife, no end. Absolutely, she's very patient and loving. Um, But you know, it's it's an amazing experience because you know, if you don't fix that thing, you will have to suffer through it. If you don't pave that pothole, you'll drive over it. If there's not a park in your neighborhood to play at, you can't take your daughter anywhere. But if you do do those things, you actually see the benefit. It's a very immediate and visceral thing. Secondly, I think cities have tremendous levers of power. And when people right now are feeling so disenfranchised because of Washington, I always say, why are you ceding all the power that you have? Don't cede the power you have before you try to exercise it. And the Port of LA brings in 43% of the goods that come into America. That's something under our local control. If we want to implement the Paris Climate Accords, when I've helped 382 other cities take the same pledge that we did, I chair a group called Climate Mayors, Washington can't stop us from buying electric cars or changing our building codes or creating 100% green electricity in in the utility that we control. Um, We kind of are building America and local communities, not vice versa. And there might have been a day in the 60s and 70s, I told President Obama this when I was elected mayor, he convened the class of 2013 um, at the White House. And there in the Roosevelt Room for a couple hours, he went city by city through um, asking us what we needed. And he asked me to start, and I said, in the 60s and 70s, people were leaving and fleeing cities. 
and they came to Washington so that Washington could help save America's cities. I think it's vice versa right now. It's the cities of America that will help save Washington. You, um, you concentrated on a, a, a few issues, particularly when you were in the city council. Uh, one was parks. You mm-hmm. mentioned parks before. Uh, the other was crime, and particularly youth crime. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose those two? You know, quality of life comes down to kind of opportunities and great public spaces. Um, there's, a, there's a caricature of L.A. that we live these solitary lives in our cars and never see one another. And certainly... Yeah. I think uh, I've spread that from time to time. <laughs> we see, usually comes out of either Chicago or New York <laughs> press. But the reality is um, Angelinos love being outside. We have great weather. We can do it 360-something days a year probably. And, um, and yet, while we have these amazing soaring parks and we have the most beautiful topography of a city in America where you have Griffith Park and the ocean and you have these amazing vistas, for a lot of uh, kids and families who lived in the denser uh, urban core, they didn't have a park within walking distance. Mm-hmm. And I had the densest district in the city of L.A. So we more than tripled the number of parks from 14 to, sorry, 16 to 48 parks in a matter of like eight or nine years. And I wanted to show that it didn't matter if you didn't have a lot of land, you could scrap and you could figure out a way because then that brings people together. That's healthier outcomes for the kids, better education. We did it with schools. So it was just all around something for quality of life. Crime was, uh, I think that's the first responsibility of local government. I, I had very low income neighborhoods that had had traditionally extremely high crime. And we did things like reduce our graffiti by like 90 something percent. Uh, William Bratton, Bill Bratton, who used to be our chief here, said, I know when it's your district because I look across the street and it's all tagged. And the program you brought in, which enlisted over a thousand block captains, just to tell us where it was so we could get it painted out quickly, helped us bring that down. And then people wanted to come out and go to the park or go shopping or revitalize that empty storefront um, you know, in their own neighborhood. So it led to economic revitalization when we focused on kind of crime from that and kept kids, instead of just bringing cops in, we, we tried to identify those kids that would have gone into gangs, that would have committed crimes, and really identify them early on and give them a different pathway. In the midst of uh, serving in the council, mm-hmm. you uh, enlisted in the Naval Reserve. Uh, you were 34. Mm-hmm. Um, that... Uh, uh, is admirable service is admirable it's also been the the uh, subject of some conjecture mm-hmm. about an ambitious young guy wanting to get his uh, wanting to get his uh, service credentials down for future political mm-hmm. pursuits why did you decide to uh, to join the reserves and and what did you what have you gotten out of that experience Oh, it was a very visceral decision. I I usually have a check, which is, will I really regret not doing this? And I had wanted to join ever since I'd spent time in Burma. I had a a colonel from the United States Army who had been the U.S. military attache to Burma during the crackdown. He was the guy who I was with in the jungle doing these trainings. Bob Helvey was his name, a real kind of West Virginia Reagan Democrat um, who uh, was a a tough-as-nails air cavalry Vietnam vet. And he said, look, you care about democracy and you care about human rights and you care about international relations. He said, if you want to make an impact in those areas, you better join the intelligence and or military fields at some point. You need to. And um, so I thought I'd do that then in the early 90s. And then I won this Rhodes Scholarship and life kind of took off. 
And after 9-11, it just rang in my ears even more, kind of a patriotic call. A lot of people, fewer and fewer who serve. My grandfather got a citizenship um, from serving in World War II. He wasn't a citizen yet, um, even though, as I mentioned, he was kind of a dreamer and had lived here since he was one year old and volunteered to go to the Pacific Theater. My uncle had served in the Navy. And um, so I decided to join uh, the Navy to become an intelligence officer, um, which kind of combined both those things that I cared about. It has been an extraordinary experience. I'm, I'm still in the what's called the standby reserve, but it's been uh, uh, nearly 12 years total. Um, never, never made it to Iraq or Afghanistan. No, didn't get my ticket punched, though I was ready to go. Um, during the recession, a lot of other people were volunteering ahead of me um, uh, just for their own economic reasons, I think, among other things. But I have a lot of folks that did and, and earned the kind of uh, the credit for the work that we're doing, which I can't speak in great detail, was the same as what folks were doing uh, deployed abroad. Um, it was not just training to deploy. We were doing real-time intelligence work that contributed to the global war on terror at the time. W was that at all useful to you when you became mayor? Because L.A. is obviously uh, a highly sensitive target, being as vital a part of our country as it is. Yeah. Uh, did having some background from your service um, prove to be useful at all to you? Yes. I mean, on all sorts of levels. I have a, a fluency, a respect for, and, and a knowledge of, um, of the Navy, of joint operations. My last unit was a DIA unit, Defense Intelligence Agency. And one of the, the skills I was trained as a strategic debriefer is all about learning how to listen. And I think in politics, we too often teach people how to talk or expect them to give great speeches, but we don't have a lot of good listeners, especially at this moment when the American people need that. And so there is definitely the overlap between how I was trained as an intelligence officer and the skills that I use now. Um, but it was just very important to me, um, you know, that, that we don't just have others do that work, that we ourselves, especially those of us who will make decisions, know what it's like behind the scenes. And to me, the greatest feeling in the world, I was city council president in charge of all sorts of people. And then I'd go in, I'd be a junior officer. And it was my middle management experience that helped inform how I am as an executive now to be able to say, hey, you're not always, I, I watch a lot of people get into politics at a young age. You're in charge of everything. Nobody ever teaches you how to be one of those middle level I, guys. I had this discussion with a colleague of yours, Pete Buttigieg from yeah. uh, South Bend, Indiana, who Dear friend, uh, he's great. was in the uh, reserves and, and did go to Afghanistan mm -hmm. and, uh, and talked about yeah. that very thing that, you know, now you're not the mayor anymore. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, it, it was How to be part hum of a team. humbling and, and yeah. uh, enlightening. Absolutely. Um, I should mention that we met back in uh, 2007. We did. Uh, there's nothing. The weather was a little colder. Speaking, then. speaking about humbling, <laughs> watching an Angelino uh, trudge through the snows of Iowa was uh, quite a sight. But you were there. What made you decide to? Uh, what made you decide to support uh, Obama, who at the time was oh, yeah. was uh, going to lose? <laughs> well, w some of us knew better, but uh, many yes, people thought that. Um, I had been introduced to Barack Obama by mutual friends who said, "Hey." We see a lot you guys have in common. He's coming from a mixed marriage. You are too. He's was at Harvard Law School. You got to study as a Rhodes Scholar. Um, you know, you guys kind of think alike. You remind me of each other, et cetera. And I met this guy when he was state senator in the contested primary for the Democratic nomination for Senate. Did an event out here, and we hit it off. And whenever I'd go to D.C., 
um, I'd call him and we had, I was, it was easier to connect with him sometimes than members of my own congressional delegation. We sat down and kind of dreamed together, uh, talking about Latino and African American relations, about sustainable energy. Um, and, uh, when he ran, it was no question. Um, I was heading up something called democratic municipal officials at that time, which was the democratic party's organization for all mayors and local officials in the country. It was a forgotten little caucus and I built it up to a fully staffed million dollar a year budget organization. And I just loved that he spoke at the local level. He spoke about community. He was a community organizer. And so I figured I was going to support him for not that race. I mean, I'd support him, but he'd win the next time. This was going to be his first presidential run or something if we had a shot. And and I said, uh, he came out here. It was the 15th anniversary of the uh, L.A. riots. And he spoke at First AME, which was the main church here, when those riots were burning the city down. And um, I got some message to him beforehand about some things to talk about. And he wove it beautifully together to this audience. It wasn't even a full church, you know. Um, maybe half-filled, Stevie Wonder dropped by and played a song. And I rode with him afterwards, and I said, look, I want to get involved in this campaign. I want to be your chair out here in, in California. I think we can build something big. Um, and in that car ride, he said, okay, you're my California chair, and we were off to the races. And uh, some six months later, seven months later, I was in Iowa. And what I loved about walking door-to-door in Iowa is exactly what you said. I remember knocking on the door once and said, excuse me, my name is Eric. I'm visiting here from Los Angeles. And Iowans being so generous, they said, I don't care what candidate you're campaigning for. If you're out here from L.A., I'm going to support him. <laughs> so yes. they, and they invited me in. I got another vote for Barack Obama. So make a note, future campaigns, tell all your workers to that tell from people LA. <laughs> in Iowa that they're from L.A. Uh, you ran for mayor in 2013. I came out here yes, you uh, for that. And, helped out. And, uh, uh, and, and that was a bit of a, there was a little bit of a lingering hangover from the 2008 yeah. primaries there. there were, uh, your opponent had supported Hillary, yep. a lot of the Clinton folks on that side. Um, but you managed to overcome that yeah i wasn't expected like the first city i've never been expected to win i've kind of been the outsider whenever i run the not only did the chamber of commerce not support me the county federation of labor didn't support me i i think because i was newer to it and i understood some of that um uh, but i didn't really have the establishment and in some ways that's probably what propelled me to a victory i remember listening to conservative talk radio and when i was in the runoff with my opponent at the time who's now was and now is a good friend again they said, well, we don't trust e- either of them. They're both commies, but at least uh, he isn't bought and paid for by the establishment. So we're voting for Garcetti. <laughs> there was a real kind of sense of, of what I'd accomplished in the neighborhoods I'd represented. People could see with their eyes that the neighborhood of Hollywood had turned around and some of the core parts of L.A. And my proposal was, look, if you like what I've done here, I, I want to do this and bring the city back to the basics. A city should run well. And there was a feeling that we weren't doing basic city services anymore. Yes, do the big and progressive and visionary things, but fix the crap in my neighborhood first. Pave the streets, open a park, trim the trees. Like That's what the job description says. Make sure there's cops on the beat, that 911 calls are answered, the trash is picked up. And I think a lot of times we in politics get so far away from what this is really about. This isn't about the game. It's not about the sexiness. It's not about the fights. It's actually about producing things that matter where people live. Yeah, well, that that's an interesting perspective that mayors have because it it's a cliche, but there, you know, there aren't 
particularly partisan ways of doing the basic things that need yeah. to be done. That's right. So, although you do have to raise the money to do them, you just you just uh, championed a few revenue raising. Yeah. Uh, uh, issues talk about that we had uh, you know the same night that uh, president uh, trump was elected um and many people were scratching their heads all the way to crying in corners um nationally out here in la we had an amazing night we passed five different measures one to improve our community colleges which i helped uh, make la the biggest city to have free community college one to expand our parks um and then uh, two on homelessness and one on transportation. The homeless measures were to build housing and to provide services. Cities around this country, and particularly the West Coast, are seeing an explosion of homelessness. And these were the two biggest measures in U.S. history. And then the biggest of all these was something called Measure M, which is a $120 billion um, uh, transportation package, the largest times two in U.S. history at the local level. And just forget the numbers, it's 15 new rapid transit lines in LA, fixing our freeways and kind of doing the most basic things like paving our, our streets. It's about 700,000 jobs and it's going to last not just for like a one-off. Oftentimes we vote for these things and there's a few jobs. These are going to be careers for people in the middle class who might've in the past been building, you know, bombers in world war two on the assembly line in South LA without a college degree can now build rail cars on some of these rail lines, um, have a good union job, have benefits, healthcare, and part of it for me was, first and foremost, let's fix the traffic in L.A. It's the worst in the country. Second, You see? Connect. You <laughs> see? It's not just the Chicagoans who no, say no, no. It's, it. We know it, and we've <laughs> got to fix it. And then second, let's provide good middle-class jobs. And I'll tell you, I can get as nationalist about the economy as anybody. I'll tell you something, that when we passed that and I started looking at how we're going to spend it, the port of L.A., which is, as I mentioned, the number one port in the country, uh, the airport where we're doing more renovation, more investment than any airport in the country. There's not a single American company that builds port equipment. For the rail cars, there's not a single American company that builds a rail car anymore. So this is a moment, and part of my gospel that I'm trying to spread across the country is, let's pass these things at the local level if Washington's incapable. And then second, let's invest in American workers by creating American companies that can do this stuff that we know how to do. Sometimes we're creating the technology, exporting it to other places. Um, and they're getting the benefit of it when we should. And I think it's a real pathway to rebuild the middle class. In an insecure moment, these are jobs you can't offshore. These are good jobs, and they actually produce something we all need. You know, this. Um, well, well, I'll, I'll get to the. I, I want to get to the whole national scene in in a second. One of the issues that's obviously come to the fore, particularly because of the presidential election, is immigration. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, uh, among other mayors, have had have been uh, battling with the administration over their position on so-called sanctuary cities. First of all, uh, I, I read that you don't use that phrase, sanctuary cities. Why? Well, because nobody has a definition of what it means. What I say is if sanctuary city means that our police officers do their work separate from ICE here for a whole host of reasons that police chiefs from the most conservative ones in 1979 when this started to more enlightened ones that we have now have said is good policing, then we are a sanctuary city and proudly so. But most people hear that term as it's been constructed and they say, oh, there's these cities that say, please come in here, criminals. If you're undocumented, we're going to give you bonus points. And that city doesn't exist. So I'm not going to play into somebody's caricature. I'm going to pl- talk about what good policing entails. I'm going to talk about what 
good economies are built on and how family unity is important too. And I, I'm too pro-family to break up families. I'm too pro-economy in a city where 63% of our businesses are started by immigrants to roll that back. And I'm never going to stop listening to our police officers who know how to bring down gangs like MS-13, who know how to win the trust of our immigrant communities um, and have done that since a guy named Chief Gates here in 1979 started that policy and he wasn't exactly known as a raving liberal. What, what has been the experience with... Um with, there is this portrait that the president has painted of immigrants and and crime. What has been the experience here? You did have a problem with MS-13. Right, and, and we've had – our gang crime has cut more than half over the last decade. Um, we've been extremely successful because we have trust in immigrant communities. You know, unlike CSI, usually – uh, cases aren't cracked by a bunch of people. So you have the people. trust of the communities. Exactly. In other words, the communities are working with police. Right, because some grandma, some abuelita says, hey, that's the apartment. I trust you, LAPD. That's the apartment where I saw drug dealing going on, or those are the bad guys. Go over there. If she's worried about what those cops are going to do to her or to somebody living in her apartment building, she's not going to give you that information, and those gangs can operate freely and prey on us. My worry about the Trump administration's policies is not just that they're immoral, they're impractical. Um, and if you talk to any police officer, they will, here in L.A., they will mirror this, is that if you have limited resources, and ICE does, and they need to do their job, I want them going after the bad sharks in the sea. I want their divers, if you will, going after and finding those guys and getting them out. But what they decided to do, unlike past policy, which is go after the bad guys, is now they're throwing a net into the ocean and picking up a bunch of minnows and saying, look how successful we are, and the shark is getting away. We don't have enough resources. There's 2 million people who are here undocumented. So from a practical perspective, find the ones that are dangerous. Take the other ones who, like my grandfather, came here seeking opportunity and are contributing and find a quicker pathway to make them even more American than they are today. And your economy will prosper. The communities will continue to become safer. And you'll put your resources where we need them. Otherwise, it's literally letting the bad guys get away. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be right back with Eric Garcetti. The other big immigrant issue that's uh, uh, that's coming to a head right now is is DACA, yes, and these eight hundred thousand kids who registered uh, under the Obama executive order, who were brought here by their parents, uh, and uh, who were protected by this order, uh, and whose fate is now up in the air because of President Trump, because President Trump has canceled. Uh, that order, um, you must have a disproportionate share mm-hmm. uh, of these young people here. How um, how significant an issue is this in the community? This is huge for Los Angeles. Um, these are doctors. These are teachers. These are folks. We had a dinner here at City Hall where I invited uh, a bunch of these dreamers to come here. This is something that a majority of Republicans and Democrats are for, um, making sure they have a pathway to permanent citizenship. Um, and it's my grandfather. This is really personal for me. Um, we didn't use those terms. We didn't have those programs. But because he, like some dreamers do today, was able to enlist in the Army, um, he was able to finalize the last step in becoming an American. Um, I wouldn't be here were it not for that. Um, we couldn't have won that war if we hadn't done that. And um, the inaction right now in Washington around dreamers uh, is unconscionable. Put your vote where your mouth has been. We have enough. We know a majority of both houses of Congress have said that they are for this, even the president. And so don't hold them hostage because of a wall or because of anything else. 
get that work done. And now think about this practically, not just morally. Uh, here in L.A., and every study has shown, if these folks are pushed back in the shadows, because you can't deport 100% of everybody who's here undocumented, just don't have the, the people power, that drags down the wages for the rest of us who are citizens. Because you're competing against somebody who works under the table, who doesn't have benefits, less than minimum wage. When they work on, you know, uh, in a legal way, that helps everybody's wages, not just theirs, go up. And we've shown that time and time again. And so we have $2 billion of taxes they pay, $4 billion of economic activity. Let's just be competitive with the world. You know, I had the mayor of Seoul, Korea come visit me. And he said, we need to be more like you. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, we've been very successful in South Korea. My city is, is very dynamic, but we're not diverse enough. Mm-hmm. And it's your immigrants and your diversity, which is your competitive advantage in the world today. Others can see it from the outside in. We need to start. Well, doing you can it from see the it in the Japanese out. economy and yeah. uh, the price that they've paid for uh, for not absolutely uh, welcoming uh, uh, immigrants. And uh, you know, our own economy. I mean, economists will tell you if we have to rely on, on our native-born population, yeah. then we're going to look lose lose altitude. People are insecure, but let's find real opportunities for them instead of blaming folks for their insecurity. Let's secure borders. People need to have that for a nation to function. But, um, you know, if a coal worker uh, in West Virginia is losing work, the solution has nothing to do with a dreamer in Los Angeles. In fact, we should be creating better jobs for him or her In L.A., in the last four years, we've created 20,000 green energy jobs. In four years, in a town that's 1% of the nation's population, there's only 54,000 jobs in coal in the country. I mean, imagine if we were actually applying some real responsive policies to people who are facing economic insecurity. Because guess what? The moment you make the dreamers all here illegally again... That person didn't get a job in West Virginia. So should Democrats in uh, the Congress uh, uh, insist on a solution to DACA before they uh, vote for a budget? Absolutely. Absolutely. So even if it meant the government shuts down? I think that this is one in which there is bipartisan support. And if that bipartisan support slips past the deadline that the president has called for action and that congressional leaders have said there will be action, that's absolutely fair play to do. And I think they should. Um, Another uh, story that is current as we sit here today is the Senate just passed a tax bill. The House has passed a tax bill. Uh, Both of them would uh, end the deduction for state and local income taxes and uh, limit uh, the Senate bill would limit, I guess both bills would limit uh, property taxes, uh, deductions to $10,000. This is a city and a state where uh, there are high taxes that are deductible. Uh, it's one of the ways you pay for all the things you're talking about. Um, how, how much of a blow would this be to Los Angeles and to California? It's going to be terrible. And in turn, bad for America because of that. Los Angeles isn't some disconnected island, um, and we're not unique. I think the American dream is predicated on four things. It's a decent job, getting a decent house, uh, good education, and health care. This tax bill has the unique um, skill of being able to hurt all four. With jobs, it eliminates something called private activity bonds. The $15 billion that we're spending at the airport creating good American jobs just the financing that will become half a billion dollars more expensive overnight. Fewer jobs, more congestion. I said, thank the Republican tax bill next time you're stuck on the tarmac at LAX. Secondly, on education, you can't deduct your, your debt 
Um, we want more higher education. We're going to make it more difficult. Third, on healthcare, we know what this will do, driving more people uh, off the rolls with the end of a mandate. All of our, those of us who have million, it will go up, to the congressional and up to 13 million will be without healthcare. Uh, and then fourth, on housing, this takes away federal tax credits to be able to build affordable housing in the private marketplace, by the way, um, which we badly need and many communities need to build housing. So I, it's not just about states that have higher taxes that are blue states and they somehow... Although can- that, do you think that that factored into the calculation? I mean, they needed to find savings in order to satisfy the yeah. requirements of the oh. rule that allowed them to vote. No question, it makes it more palatable. On a simple majority. Yeah, it makes it absolutely more politically palatable. But it's, it's so perverse. I mean, the middle-class tax cuts here, the, the per capita average income is 28000 Within a year, those people will have higher taxes. Within three years, anybody 50000 and under will have higher taxes. And by 2027, all of our tax breaks sunset while the corporations keep theirs. That's crazy. That's un-American. And I'll tell you something that has nothing to do with ideology. My greatest worry as a mayor is when an economy is at full steam and you put this much money out there, back out there in corporate hands, it risks inflation, and inflation usually leads to a recession. I'm truly worried that not only will this make the building of things this country needs more difficult, education less accessible, housing tougher to find, uh, that we will lose jobs because of this, that we will head into a recession because this is such an ill-timed, ill-conceived tax break for corporations making record profits. So not growth, but recession, you think, is the result of this? Absolutely. I think we risk that. You uh, travel around. You're traveling around the country. I want to ask you about why uh, in a minute. But um, the thing that I hear all the time is, and you hear this when parties lose, but that the Democratic Party doesn't have a message. And what is the message of the Democratic Party? What do you think the message of the Democratic Party should be? I think we need to be a lot less obsessed with a message for the Democratic Party and more obsessed with an agenda for American people. And we get caught in this trap of who who cares who the chair of our state party is or our national party, even though Tom Perez is a, a dear friend. That's not what the average American wakes up worried about. We fall into these traps of what do we need to say as Democrats? I don't really care. I care what we're talking about as Americans. If we happen to be the Democrats saying it better, great. People will elect us. But people come to us because they're like, that guy understands. Yeah, well, let's, let's stipulate that. But whether you say it's the message of the Democratic Party or the message that, we sh- uh, mm-hmm. that, that Democrats should be projecting to people um, uh, or, or leaders should be projecting to people, what is that message? Well, first you have to speak, I think, think some plain English again. And everybody gets caught in... Um, language that doesn't resonate. And I think the language that will resonate is about that, that clear pathway to taking the most insecure times in our lifetime and providing people with some stability and some identity. Stability in their lives and identity of belonging to an America and what those values are. We instead get caught in micro-identity. We get caught in programs. People don't care about policies. They care about their lives. And so when I travel the country right now, I'm trying to promote local solutions to national problems, that it's in local communities that we know how to create jobs. We know how to invest in things that people drive over and need to visit and that are crumbling right now. We know what the middle class looks like and we know how to protect it. And I think that people who are seeking to represent folks, Democrats or anybody else, need to speak to people's insecurities and give them pathways um, to more stability to making college, you know, something accessible, to making a decent place to live. 
in their hands to being able to make sure there's a job, a career, forget jobs, careers for the next 40 or 50 years. And the difference about what we're producing here in Los Angeles is we're not finding solutions that'll last for one or two years. We're actually re-engineering a great American city to provide that sort of prosperity for a generation or two. We've never elected a mayor president. Uh, you uh, are clearly thinking about it. Uh, That's what I read. Yeah, well, <laughs> I haven't seen your letter to the editor objecting, so I assume that... Uh, I'm drafting it. <laughs> uh, so, t- but tell me what your answer to, is to people who say, look, this is... Um, this is a job that requires more. Now, you could point to the incumbent and say uh, he didn't bring a wealth of national government experience to the office, but um, but it seems like a leap to some people. Well, look, I, I would say this. First and foremost, to my constituents, my number one job and 95% of my time is spent on being mayor of L.A. Um, Bill Carrick, who's my uh, mm-hmm. political consultant Good of many of years, once told me, uh, you might have to bleep this, but he said, do good shit, and the next thing will take care of it's itself. It's a podcast. It's a podcast. Yes, you can say whatever Carrick, the it's heck Carrick, you want. It's uh, sensitive to answer. And I do believe in that. Like, you better just do good work and stop thinking about your own future, and the next step will take care of itself. Um, I could have run for governor uh, a month ago. I turned that down, not because of some other big plan, but Too because small my work for you? is... No, my work is undone here. Governor of California is a great honor, an amazing position. But I, I discount all of those rules that people give you. People said that to Barack Obama. I'm sure people said things to Donald Trump. But nobody's ever elected a black president. Nobody's had that. I, I am in charge of a constituency and my fellow brothers, sister mayors, um, that are bigger than states some, many times. This is bigger than 23 states. If I was governor of any of those 23 states, I don't think people would dismiss that. We run a port, an airport, a municipal utility, not through authorities, but direct. And I chair a, a transportation authority that's 10 million people, uh, which is bigger, I think, than 43 or 45 states. Um, so it's not a question of, of whether mayors could. If I Do you think the experience to, thing will be more important to people now because Donald Trump didn't have experience? People want results, and people want people who have produced results. You know, Mitch Landry's a good friend. People have floated his name. He'd be an excellent president. Yeah. You know, I could go to Michael I Hancock I suspect you may Denver. be running across him somewhere in the we're, we're, snows of Iowa. We're close friends, and I'd be honored if that were ever the case. I, I genuinely think, I hope, even if I'd never did, that we have mayors that run for president because they are ready. I trust people like Megan Barry in Nashville to get stuff done. I trust people like Michael Hancock uh, in Denver to get things done. Um, Pete Buttigieg in in uh, South Bend, Indiana, is a great American leader who's uh, ready to step into almost any position. And so um, I think Americans are fed up with the old rules and many of the old kind of roots. And they're certainly fed up with a lot of the leadership coming out of Washington, D.C. right now that is all about turning ourselves against one another and producing no results, or a party that is increasingly defining itself by what it takes away from Americans. Think about the Republican agenda. Take away your tax breaks. Take away your immigration status. Uh, take away your health care. I mean, it's literally about takeaways when we used to be a country that was about what we give to folks. And I think that's a message for Democrats or anybody else to make a contrast. In cities, we don't take things away. We have to do things, produce things, and add things. You said earlier that you uh, we sh- that the de- that Democrats, uh, Democrats shouldn't be about... Uh we made mistakes in the past about being about micro identity and and programs, and it sounded like a critique of the last campaign. Do you think that was the mistake that was made in the last campaign? I didn't intend it that way. I think that we've seen though quite often we get caught in our 
micro identity, um, whether that's uh, geographic, whether that's in our the policy areas. We're really good at answering a forty point answer to a difficult policy question, giving the context, giving the studies. When people are like, "Are you going to do something for me?" I I go door to door, still now in between elections. It's something I love doing, and I tell my staff members when they come to work for me, it's the heart, head, and gut check. When you knock on someone's door and you bother them enough, they open the door and realize you're not campaigning or trying to convert them. Or robbing them. Or robbing them. Yes. In LA, we have low crime, so they, <laughs> they generally don't think that. They, they then want to know, do you have a heart that connects with what their problems are? If you s- convince them of that, they'll take you to the next step, which is, okay, now, David, that you're a decent person, do you have an idea? Do you have a brain of what you can do to fix this problem? And you better have some good ideas thought out. But then the third thing, which is more important than either of the first two, is they want to then go, okay, you care about my problem. You have some ideas about my problem. But do I trust you to actually see it through? Do you have the guts to get something done? And it was the cliche after the election. All these voters who people said, well, Trump, they kind of dismissed the head and the heart. But at least he's going to do something. And you don't have to look for that, I think, with people who are mayors and governors. that We have to do things. And I think also... Increasingly, we have to be able to communicate that way. That you know, you, 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 some, uh, uh, some of the critiques of you mm-hmm. is that you're exceedingly cautious, that you... That you uh, that's, not, that's an old trope now. I mean, we passed the largest measure in U.S. history on transportation. We raised the minimum wage, made community college free. Um, you know, when I went to raise the minimum wage... Those sound like pretty popular things to do. When I raised, went to raise the minimum wage, we had folks from labor saying, go slow, don't do that now. And I said, I don't care. Like, this is too important to me. And it's not just about union labor. This is about everybody earning the minimum wage. Going after the Olympics, people said was stupid. You know, taking on... You know, when, when somebody withdraws from... Um, the Paris Accord to get 383 cities together around this country representing 70 million Americans. That's, it's not actually an easy thing to do. Um, I love jumping into the fray, taking on folks. And I think maybe the first couple of years, because we were focused on doing things like actually paving our streets and what cities should do, that was early. But I think that's more the echo chamber than what people think now. A number of the people who you mentioned earlier, and you ta- as you were talking about your yeah. fellow mayors around the country, are younger, and mm-hmm. you're in your 40s. Yep. Uh, do you think there's a generational issue in the Democratic Party? You've got you know, you've got some very prominent leaders who are looking at running for president in 2020. Vice President Biden, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, uh, even Elizabeth Warren, who are will all be in their 70s uh, then. Do you think that there is a, uh, a generational play here for, for younger candidates? I think it's one of those cliches. I don't really buy into it. Look at how popular Maxine Waters is with a younger generation that Bernie was. I mean, I think there's young there's souls. There's no doubt Bernie is popular yeah. with young people. There's, there's young souls in older ages, and there's old souls of people who are very young who feel like they're already, you know, get off my lawn and 90 years old when they're in their 20s. No, I, I don't buy into that. I don't buy into most of these divisions of the coast versus the heartland, the Bernie people versus Hillary people, the generational stuff. What I will say is it's always important to breathe new life and new ideas. And I'm looking for people, whether they've been in for 40 years or been in for one year, who look at their, um, their work as their first day on the job. 
When I just got reelected, I told people, this is not my second term in office. This is my second first term. And we better look at everything despite all the successes we've had. I mean, LA's on fire. We reduced our unemployment in half, more visitors, more residents, more jobs. I mean, all the things that we can say proudly said, that doesn't mean we've been doing anything right. How can we do it even better? And I think the Democratic Party, that is one critique I would give. We have to really think differently. Um, people have not always looked to organize parties, and they're they're kind of... They, they, they rise and fall all the time. That's not new. But more than ever, people distrust institutions. So how are we going to build up kind of that old-fashioned organizing model that will sustain itself and speak to people and not be about our power, but their power? That's the inversion that we've got to figure out. And people don't feel that it's their power. And I think they're going to find that with the Trump administration. They were sold a bill of goods that it was about their power. Um, but what has he done to actually improve their lives? And what about Washington itself? And do you think that there is uh, there is something in not being from that political environment. You know, when Mitch Landrieu was out here, he said there was uh, some congressional folks who were saying, hey, why don't you come to D.C. with a group of mayors, and we just want to listen to how you talk about changing your communities. And we've had amazing representatives in D.C. who Did, have to play defense every day. We're going to do it, yes. Do, yeah, You uh, should give them like a Rosetta Stone where they can practice. <laughs> you know, the, but they have, they've been having to play defense. I, I mean, credit to them. Every day they're getting five uh, you know, onslaughts on the White House that they do have to answer to, and they're playing good defense. But somebody out here has to stay on offense, and I think we are in our cities. So you are traveling broadly, and it, it feels like you've already in your own mind made a decision. No. Uh, what, what, what is your timetable for disclosing whatever decision that you I don't made? have one. I'm not very focused on a timetable or, or what comes next. I'm focused on Well, if you want to run for president, you would have to do yeah. it. In, no, I realize I have to. After, certainly after the next, uh, next yeah. November. But that's what I'm focused on. Flip mm-hmm. the house in 2018. And, you know, and find the solutions that are working around the country. We started a new organization called Accelerator for America that is um, all about what's working in towns like South Bend or Dayton or Nashville or Los Angeles and helping other cities more quickly get those things passed. I'm more interested in getting a couple hundred billion dollars of infrastructure passed through local city referenda, quite frankly, than what comes next in my political career. If we do that, that's the kind of legacy to leave behind. And as a mayor, we always have good panels, good studies, but nobody helps us get things done quickly, and that's what I'm focused on organizing and helping my fellow mayors do. You, you, you could see where the skeptic would say, the cynic, I guess, this would be more than skeptic, accelerate for America to say, give me a break. You're, this is a vehicle for you. No, I don't think anybody's going to wow, look back and really say, wow. I just extended the metaphor several <laughs> times. No, I, I, nobody's going to look back and say, wow. You know, somebody who starts a, a think tank, action tank for local level, no, nobody cares about that politically. I care about it deeply because it will have a long-term lasting effect. But I think part of the reason people are so cynical about politics um, is everything that you do is always about w- some future thing. Um, I, don't get me wrong. Eyes wide open. It's important to prepare for the future. But what America needs right now is some stitching together some repair and some way that we can take local communities and help them. But, you know, just what, what is wrong? What is actually wrong with saying, yeah, I think I could do that. And so if I have the opportunity, I'm going to take it. Uh, I may. But I think it's right now too much of a distraction of stuff that's more urgent to me. It becomes 100 percent of the conversation. We elect a president and literally the next week on TV, who's going to run in four years instead of what does this country need? 
I, like most Americans, get very well, The screwy system that. we have requires almost a four-year run-up to the thing, unfortunately. That's fine for those who, whose life is prognosticating. But America actually needs people between those four years who are focused on solving problems. All right. Well, I, I accept that. But I have to tell you that no. the road to the White House passes through the axe files here. Everybody has to <laughs> kind of fess up right here. I, I will come back if I get on that road. Okay. We promise. We, we look forward promise. to having you back. <laughs> Thank Mayor you. Mayor Eric Garcetti, always good to be with you. Great to be with you, too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.